0: So back in 2015, I think it was, Eunice, it was for our 10th anniversary. Uh, we got to go back to Arizona and uh, visit my old stomping grounds. That's where I spent a lot of my high school years and early college days. And I uh, got to go visit the, the church that I used to attend, uh, that was very formative in my, in my spiritual growth. And I got to go and sit under the pastor that I grew up with. His name is Steve Cole. And, and it was awesome. And I, I remember when we were sitting there through the sermon, Pastor Cole was speaking. Uh, He was preaching on the last uh, message in a series that he was doing on the book of John. And no one else thought it was funny, but I was laughing because I left in 1999, and he was starting a series on the book of John. I just imagined all those years he was just teaching on the book of John. He's an expository preacher. It's not unheard of. They do that. And uh, So anyways, today we're going to do a little bit of expository preaching where we're, like, we're really honing in on one verse and we're going to be looking at it uh, pretty close. Now the other reason I mention it is because we're going to be talking about the book of Galatians. And uh, if you were, the last time you were here, hopefully it wasn't the last time you were here, but it was back in December 30th, I think it was, was the last time I preached. I preached on the first half of the book of Galatians. So if that was the last time you were here and you just came back again today, you're going to think we've been spending a lot of time in the book of Galatians. That's not the case. It's just kind of how we're going with. Uh, There was some some low-hanging fruit uh, that, you know, just some juicy fruit, theologically speaking, that was still to be found in the book of Galatians. And I was like, man, I feel like I'm still left hanging, not talking about this second portion of the book of Galatians. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. It's trying to, trying to grasp hold of some of that fruit that's still on the tree there. And so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to review with you real quick because it has been three months or so since we've talked about Uh, at least in here with with me, about the book of Galatians. And so uh, Paul wrote the book of Galatians to Christians, and it was a group of churches that were in the area of Galatia, which is like a strip of land uh, that goes right through the middle of modern-day Turkey. And he wrote to them, and he was scolding them for exchanging the true gospel, the gospel of grace, which is priceless, and exchanging it for a worthless gospel, the gospel of works, And it was useless because it was unable to accomplish that which they had hoped. And the big issue was in Galatians 1.6. I I like those verses that kind of encapsulate arguments and big ideas. And this was the the big issue that Paul was writing to to address. He said, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by grace. That's going to be a key word right there, by grace, the gospel of grace, I called you by grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one. The gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. It's so easy for us to think that, you know, the the old covenant, the Old Testament was a gospel of works. And then Jesus came and now it was a gospel. It is a gospel of grace. Like that was the turning point. I want us to understand that it has always, always been a gospel of grace right from the very beginning. Even when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that was grace. They didn't deserve it. Like, uh, was it Psalm 8, 4, I think it says, this: says, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's a very good question. It's rhetorical, but I think we say there's nothing that really makes us special. It was God's grace that put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then God's grace that gave them dominion in the garden. It was God's grace that kicked them out of the garden, which sounds weird But that was God's grace, because if they lived there, they would have lived there for eternity, eternally separated from the goodness of God. It was God's grace that he kicked them out. It was God's grace that he clothed them in their nakedness. It was God's grace that he gave them the promise of the Messiah that would rescue them from their sins. And up to that point, the only work that they had done was sin, really, really. So we see that, you know, it was just, it's always God's grace. God's grace through the whole Old Testament. Abraham, God made the covenant with Abraham. What was Abraham doing in the middle of that covenant? He was sleeping. He wasn't doing a whole lot, was he? He was sleeping through that, through that covenant. The Israelites, God rescued Israel from captivity before the law was even given. That is grace. And so that's what, it's so important that we recognize that it has always been a matter of grace, grace. And this is the truth uh, that is one of the pillars of Christian doctrine, justification by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 2.16, no one is justified by the works of the law, reiterating it, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Is that clear enough? Does that ring up? Y'all remember this, right? You have probably already memorized it from last time we talked. I know, you're saying, we are, you already told us this, Pastor John. You're right. Back in December, we discussed this. In fact, every pastor who ever preaches probably mentions just, you know, evangelical pastor. We love honing in on this, this topic. You know, we love talking about justification by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's not of works. We know that, we know that. But today, I want, to, I want to take it a step further. Today, I want to propose to you guys that in the same way we are justified by grace through faith, so too are we sanctified by grace through faith. I hear a lot about justification by grace through faith, but I don't hear a whole lot about sanctification by grace through faith. In the same way we are justified by grace through faith in Christ, we are declared right before God with the, with the spiritual blindness of our hearts being dispelled by a miraculous work of God's spirit in our lives. So, too, are we sanctified by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit where our lives grow to reflect the holiness of God, not by works of the flesh or ritualistic obedience to the law, but by the grace of God that is powered through his Holy Spirit. Now, in the book of Galatians, audience matters. Who was Paul writing to? He was writing to believers. He was writing to Christians. And we know this because Paul calls them brothers and sisters. He refers to them as those of you who were baptized into Christ. And he said, since you know God. This tells me that they had already been justified. They had already been justified. They'd already been declared righteous before God by faith in Christ Jesus. So when Paul talks a lot about salvation and justification to people who have already been, uh, you know, saved and justified, I don't think it was. It's kind of like a clue. It's like I don't think that's his main point. It's like he's building to something else. I think he's trying to. I don't think he's just trying to clarify the salvation doctrine. I think Paul has a very practical purpose in mind. I think he's laying out a logical sequence of points and questions in order to reach an ultimate conclusion of how we should live out our Christian lives. That's a huge question. Okay, so now that you are a Christian, that's awesome. I'm so glad you guys are saved, but now what? That is the question I think that Paul is really trying to answer. Now that you're saved, now that you're a Christian, now what? And I would love to hear your responses right now to hear what you're thinking in your mind. What do I do now that I'm saved? What's that next step? What do I do, what I don't do? What are the rules? You know, and you could probably make a spreadsheet of how you answer that question. And the Judaizers, they were super quick at answering that question. They were jumping into the early church and they finished that sentence by saying, Follow the law. To which Paul replies, and this is a little bit of review here too, but it's building to a point. He says, How did you receive the Spirit? By obeying the works of the law or believing? By grace and faith. And I have to say, by believing. How did God work miracles among you? In chapter three, verse five, by works or believing? By believing. How do you? Uh, he says, "What made Abraham right before God, obeying laws or believing?" Chapter three, verse six, and the answer is the same: by believing. It's still a grace through faith kind of thing. Paul, I think, and when he's he's setting up this logical sequence of, of questions for them, he's coming. He's trying to firmly disconnect how God operates and interacts with us, his children, as being distinctly separate, completely separate from our ability to be able to obey the law. That is what grace is. God working, God moving, God changing and accomplishing his good and perfect will without an ounce of our deserving it. This is true, this is true before salvation, it is true in salvation, it is true after salvation that it's all about grace, through faith in Christ Jesus, no matter what time frame we are in, no matter what point we are in our walk with Christ. And this next verse I want you to look at, chapter three, verse three, I want you to look at this, because this, this is the hinge pin. This is the verse that everything starts to change. Paul is building his case, and then he like nails this verse super hard. Everything turns, everything changes on this verse right here. Chapters one through three kind of are building up to this verse and then four, five, and six are building off of it. Everything changes. I love this verse, this amazing one. He says, are you so foolish? That's a great way to get your audience to respond favorably to you, isn't it? I should have opened with that one. Are you guys foolish? You probably would have just stood up and walked away. He says, are you so foolish that after beginning by the Spirit, You are finishing in the flesh. That is foolishness. And he's calling you a fool if you are relying and doing that in your Christian walk. What does that mean? What what does it mean to start in the spirit and then going back and finishing in the flesh? That's a great question. Some questions for you that I'll present to you to help you maybe identify whether you are operating in the spirit right now as a sanctified, you know, as you're going through the process of sanctification, or if you're operating and you're finishing your walk with Christ in the flesh. Are you tired and worn out and you can't keep doing this whole Christian thing? You are finishing in the flesh. Are you entangled and ensnared and enslaved by sin? No matter how hard you try to get rid of it, you are finishing in the flesh. Do you have a mental checklist of things you must do each day or week or year that satisfies your obligation to God? You're probably finishing in the flesh. Are you more concerned about how people perceive you than God, how God perceives you, you are finishing in the flesh? Do you look around and see people who are doing so much better at being a Christian than you, and it gets you down. You're finishing in the flesh. Do you look around and you see people who, are doing, uh, who are, aren't doing so great living out their faith? And they're struggling. And does that give you a little bit of a, like, make you feel a little bit better about yourself? You're finishing in the flesh. You are finishing in the flesh. If you are finishing in the flesh, I believe this next verse is a verse for you. Galatians 5 1. Are you there yet? Sorry, I told you to skip back to three. My bad. Galatians 5.1, and I'm going to wait for you to get there. I want to hear all the pages stop. Don't be that guy to the last page. Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free to stand firm. Therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom is the signal blessing of the economy of grace. Freedom only comes with from, from grace, from the gospel of grace, which is in direct contrast to the economy of the Old Testament. A covenant and the law, which is bondage. It's no surprise that what was the physical state that Israel spent a majority of their time in? Bondage and slavery. They were constantly at the mercy of someone else, even when Jesus came. You know, they weren't just slaves in Egypt. Even when, when Jesus came, they were in bondage uh, to the rule of the Roman Empire. It was constant. This mirrors, um, this mirrors what we had and can expect spiritually when we continue to live under the law. A yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It's seemingly a redundant phrase. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It's like me, me you know, telling you, I'm giving you this to give you this. It's, it's weird. We just don't speak that way. But I love what Paul's saying here. And uh, to illustrate it a little bit, I'm going to pick on Natalie Because Natalie, I think it's been a couple of years ago, Natalie was in Joyful Noise. She's in C-squared now. But at the end of the year, uh, they would always get prizes for how well their attendance, you know, and memory verses, how well they did with all that. And she came home with this little toy. And uh, uh, it was kind of like a double-sided car. It was really cool. You turned it on the bottom. It would just start going. And it would hit a wall, and it would flip over, and then it would just keep going. Well, Natalie, she was playing with this in her room, and she turned it on, and it was going. It went underneath her bed, and Natalie was like, oh, no, I got to go get it, and so she goes underneath her bed, and she's on the lower bunk, so she's like down on the ground, and there wasn't a whole lot of room. She's under there trying to get her truck, and her truck went over, and it hit the wall. It flipped over, and it came back. Problem is is that her hair is laying all over the ground. And it's, these wheels are just constantly going, four of them. She comes walking into the living room. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Natalie comes in walking like a wet cat, and she's got a truck stuck to the side of her head with all of, the, all of her hair, you know, just totally entangled inside of these wheels. And uh, it was hard not to laugh. Thankfully, Natalie, she's a great sport. She was kind of like laughing, smirking a little bit. And uh, it took us a while, but we finally got her extracted from this vehicle. And uh, it was it was a fun memory. Thankfully, Natalie didn't come back in a few minutes later after I had extracted her, unentangled her from that. She didn't come back in and say, "Dad, happened again." I would have been like, "I didn't just I didn't just unentangle you, Natalie, so you could go get entangled again." That's ridiculousness, and parents, you probably have some great stories about you doing, helping your kids out, and they go and do the exact same thing, and you have to help them out again, and Paul is saying something very similar here when he's saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He's saying, he's telling the Galatians, you guys, you, I've, you've been unentangled from it. Don't. Why are you going back to it and getting all tangled up again? Like Romans 8, 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Why are you going back to the law of sin and death now that you're saved? It's ridiculousness. It's craziness. I didn't set you free from the law of sin and death for you to go get tangled all back up in it and again. Going back to Galatians 5.1 again. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit. Another other, uh, translation say um, entangled. Do not submit. Do not get entangled. Now you see where I get that illustration from. Do not, get, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This yoke is so important for us to understand theologically what is happening here. A yoke is crucial to make an ox plow a field. Am I right? Yeah, we can get some amens. Yeah. A yoke is critical to making an ox be useful. It forces and makes an animal do what it would not normally do of its own free will. If it was free, an ox is is not out plowing the field. That's ridiculous. Unyoked oxen do not plow fields. Why? Because it's not in its nature. In the same way, when we we're sinners. It was not in our nature to do what is good and right. Just, just pure and righteous. It takes an external force, the yoke of God's law, to help steer and, un- and steer and direct unsaved people in the right direction. That's what laws do. Laws help people do what they don't want to do. Am I right? Laws. That's what the whole point of laws are. That's why parents have laws. Our kids don't do what we want them to do. So we have laws and rules because our cute little kids are depraved. That's why our government has laws, because our noble citizens are depraved. That's why my wife has laws, because her husband is depraved. Amen, guys? Or no, amen all the women, I think. Is on. Yeah, amen women? Yes. Your husbands are depraved. And that's why God has laws is because people are depraved. The need for laws is a sign of our depravity and a direct result from that. 1 Timothy 1.9 affirms this. It says, we know that the law is meant for a right, uh, I'm sorry, let me get this right. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. The law is not meant for a righteous person. But for the lawless, the rebellious, for the ungodly, the sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers and murderers, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on with a whole long list. It keeps going. The law isn't for the righteous. It is for the unrighteous. Can you imagine parents a home that did not need rules? Glorious. That would be glorious. That would be amazing. I would love that. Kids just cleaning up their rooms and helping out with the dishes and doing going to bed uh you're not watching too much tv uh you know it's just like self i mean it's just like that would be incredible can you imagine a country that didn't need rules you know no, no one uh, you wouldn't have to lock your doors you wouldn't have to worry about you know, all these crazy drivers on the streets we wouldn't have politicians amen <laughs> No politicians. We wouldn't need lawyers and attorneys. I was like, oh my goodness, can you think of the money that we would save? That'd be incredible. Can you imagine parents, can you, you know, with your kids uh, obeying the rules and not needing rules in the home? Can you imagine a country that doesn't need rules? I think God made the church so that the world doesn't have to imagine. I think God made the church so that the world doesn't have to imagine. God made us free to be free. God made us free to be free. Let's go back to the ox a second. Imagine for a moment that you are driving down the road, and this is, would have to be out in like Amish country or something to be able to see this. Imagine you're driving down the road and and uh, you saw an ox plowing a field. Imagine that that ox had no external force making it do that. There was no man behind it. There was no whip behind it. There was no yoke on his shoulders. That ox is plowing the field. You would have to say, there is something different about that ox. I hope you would say that. You'd say that is weird, that's not normal, What's going on here? You would stop and you would take notice of that crazy ox because it is doing something that is different from its nature. It is not compelled from that external force, yet it plows. Wow. You might not be the wow moment. This is wow to me. I think this is exactly the point that Paul is trying to make for us. If the world sees us as Christians... Forced to do what we do by the rules and a fear of death, we are no different from everybody else. Our religion is no different than all the other religions in the world. If we are compelled by force and fear of death, we are no different. But what if they saw us love God while under no, while under no compulsion, just because he is worthy? Just because we can't not love him. We can't not serve him. Imagine if they saw that. Imagine if they saw us loving people just because God loves people and because we love people, not because they earned our love or deserved it or are obeying our rules, but because we're living out the gospel of grace. What would people look at us and say? They'd say, That is awesome. That is amazing, and they'd say, something changed their nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Freedom is part of the economy of grace, not of the law. There is no longer an outward compulsion, an outward force, but an inward leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, that's what Paul is talking up about and he's leading up to uh, Galatians 5.16. Galatians 5.16 says this, but I say, and he's, uh, he's offering us the alternative to living by the law in our lives after salvation and our process of salvation or sanctification. So stop trying to live by the law. Don't submit back to that yoke. You are being led and guided and directed by something different. And it is not an external force. It is an internal force. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit walk in step with the spirit you are not going faster you're not going slower you are completely and wholly dependent on god and his timing setting the speed for your life and the direction and you're being led by the holy spirit this is the difference if we walk by the spirit it says you will not gratify the desires of the flesh If you are gratifying the desires of the flesh, you are walking in the flesh. If you are walking in the spirit, this is why it's crucial for us to grasp this concept as Christians saying, okay, now that I'm saved, what's my next step? If we don't get this following the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit as an internal entity that that compels me instead of this external force of the yoke of God's law and slavery, we will never be free from the battle of sin in our lives. The battle with the flesh, when it's done with the law, has failed already, but the battle with the flesh, when we rely on the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives from the inside out, it's a battle that has already been won. Galatians 5.1 says, do not submit again. Do not submit again. These Judaizers were coming in and they were were saying, Oh, you got to be circumcised. I hate that circumcision that keeps coming up. It's like, can't they pick a different issue? You know, something a little less sensitive. You know, just find something else. No, circumcision. You got to be circumcised. You got to obey the law. And Paul goes on to say, You know, you can't do that. If you obey a little bit of the law, you have to obey the whole law. You can't just pick little pieces of law. Oh, this one's comfortable. I'll do this one and not this one. It's like, you want the law, you gotta do the whole thing. And we know that is impossible. It can't be done. And so Paul's saying, chapter five, verse one, don't submit again. It's because they keep getting entangled. There's this regressive pull, like up at Camp Barakel. Samuel and I were talking about it. When your counselors at Camp Barakel, they do this training with you. And uh, they're telling you, because you're gonna be like a counselor- uh, with all these kids like third graders through high schoolers and they say there's this thing called a regressive pull that when you live with kids for a whole week you start acting like those kids there is a regressive pull and i won't tell you how we act like kids after a week of living with them it just happens just look at john fund he's been hanging out with kids all the time yeah amen katie there is a regressive pull The regressive pull of the law, it tempts us, it entices us to re-embrace that, even though it doesn't make sense, even though we know that it's wrong and we weren't saved by that, we shouldn't live by that, it pulls us back in, and I don't have time to like camp out on this, and I think this is maybe a sermon for August, maybe, we'll come back to it. There's three reasons I wrote down, there's probably a lot more, but I think these are three huge reasons why people regress and going back to the law Even though we have been freed to be set free from the law of sin and death. Comfort. Because of comfort. Comfort of the known. God's an unknown entity when it comes down to it. I never know what God's going to do. People are like, are you going to stay at Calvary for the rest of your life? I would love to, but you know what? I have no clue what God has got in store or planned. God's an unknown entity. And there's comfort with rules because I can see those. I can write them down on a piece of paper and I can plan my life around those rules. There's comfort with those. Israelites are a perfect example of kind of liking what was in the existing. They were were like, send us, let us go back to Egypt. We know that, we understand that. This whole walking with God through the wilderness, not my thing. Let us go back because of comfort. Comfort will entice us to be entangled and sin and the and the death that comes with the law. Control. Control's another huge reason. Because you know what? Every law has a, and teenagers know this, every law has a loophole. Christians who are living in the flesh are incredible at finding loopholes that allow them, yes, I'm living my life for God but you know what I found ways to live my life for God and for me all at the same time we like laws because we can manipulate them and in manipulating those we manipulate God and we also like the law because of image laws and legalism make our flesh look good to other people laws that we obey make us look good to other people. And we care so much what other people think. That's why Jesus challenged the Pharisees. He, well, he called them. He's like, you're whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. They were concerned more about their image and looking good. Flesh loves that. The downside of submitting again and being entangled in the law of sin and death. After we're saved, Paul says this. I'm just going to encapsulate it, and he continues through chapter five. He says, Christ will be of no advantage. Congratulations, you did not win. Christ will be of no advantage in your life. You will be obligated to keep the whole law. Good luck with that. You will be severed from Christ, fallen away from grace. Wow, harshness. Great reason to live and walk in, in the spirit in your life and not return to the law. Romans 8, three through four says this, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin and sinful flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Fulfilled, not partly filled, not almost filled, but fully filled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to the spirit. But according to the spirit get this if jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in order that we could be justified and saved if those righteous requirements really and truly have been fulfilled then why is it that we sometimes think that we have to continue working to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law after we have been saved as if jesus work was not fully filled not fully done It's almost like Jesus died on the cross to buy us a longer stick so we could pole vault the bar. It's almost like Jesus is our performance-enhancing drug that we take a little bit of this Jesus so that we can accomplish the task. Christ fully filled the righteous requirements of the law once and for all, and it's only by grace that we are saved, and it's only by grace that we are sanctified. By the work of his Holy Spirit living and active in our lives. That is what roots out sin. Be thankful that you were neither justified or sanctified by your ability to attain the standard of the law. And I think it's a very simple reason why. is because, uh, let's be honest. How have you guys been doing, now that you've been saved, how have you been doing at fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law? Raise your hand if you've been doing pretty good. I don't want to rely on the law before I'm saved, and I don't want to rely on the law after I'm saved. Neither one. When we finally stop fighting the impossible war of battling our flesh with the law, we can instead submit our flesh to the Spirit of God And we will finally have some free time to do something productive and constructive. This is the amazing thing that Paul is trying to finally get us to. It's like so many Christians find their their Christian life is is obsessed with rooting out sin. We've got to get past that. And the only way we can get past that is not the law. It's through the Holy Spirit working in and through that. And again, that's another sermon talking about how that's fleshed out. That doesn't work good. We shouldn't talk about the Spirit. Yeah. Galatians 5.13 says this, For you will call to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We finally, when we stop battling our sin in our lives because God is working through us through the Spirit, we are finally free to serve. We are free to serve. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to to do evil, but use your freedom from the law to actually do something good and serving and building up. I don't think we realize it, but the law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, isn't like this high bar. That's not the goal of what we're, we're trying to attain. That's not what God is trying to create us into being people who just don't murder. He's not trying to create people who just don't commit adultery. You can not be adulterous and not love your wife. God is not just trying to get us to live up to the standard of the law. The law, we'll never live up to that. But what God is ultimately trying to accomplish in our life is so ridiculous and so crazy, we can't do it on our own. The law as an external force isn't gonna make us do it. It's gotta be an internal work of the Holy Spirit. And what the Spirit is able to accomplish in us is far higher than the low bar of the law. Get this, Ephesians 4, 25-32 says this, therefore, having put away falsehood, not only are you not lying, he says, let each one of you speak truth with your neighbor. Don't just don't lie, speak the truth. It says, for we are members of one another. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You're not just not being angry, you're, you're going and reconciling differences with your neighbor. You're going and saying, I can't live in the state of, of separation. I'm gonna go and be reconciled. He says, uh, let the thief load no longer still. That's the old law. God's not happy if we don't just don't steal. God is happy when this next part says, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that they may have something to share with anyone in need. God wants us not just to not steal, but he wants us to work so that we can have, so that we can give. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish in our lives. It's not a bar that we hurdle. It's something that God accomplishes in our life through the work of the Holy Spirit. says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Low bar. That's a law bar. That's the bare minimal. And we can't even do that on our own. He says, but only let the words that is good for building up as fits the occasion that it it may give grace to those who hear you're not just not being negative, you are actively using your words to build up and encourage and love on people. That's a Holy Spirit kind of thing. And do not grieve it says and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, this is works of the flesh. It says let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and slander be put away from you. That's all flesh kind of stuff. He says, along with malice, now it's the Holy Spirit kind of stuff. And he says, be kind to one another. He says, be tender hearted, forgiving one another. The law doesn't produce that, only God does. As God forgave us, that's how we we're to forgive. He has set us free to serve. This truth creates a horrible tension in my heart as a pastor. And some of you guys might be all like, oh no, you know he's going there today. I don't know, maybe you you are. It creates tension in my heart. I want to explain why. I feel the same fears that the Judaizers probably felt. This doctrine of grace is dangerous. It replaces the law with license. You might hear that a lot. If we get rid of our rules and our standards... The church will fall apart. We've heard that for years and years and years. This week I read a book. It's a commentary on the book of Galatians. It was written by a guy named Warren Weersby, And uh, he, it's called Be Free. And it was one of the most liberating couple of chapters that I read in a long time. Loved the book. But Warren Wearsby, Before I tell you what he said, I want to give you some of his credentials, so you know no, I'm not just going and pulling this from like Rob Bell or somebody else that's like a little bit more off base. Warren Wearsby was Calvary, or was a pastor at a, a Calvary Baptist Church, no less. It's down in Kentucky, but he was a he's a Baptist pastor. Uh, Warren Weir'sby. Uh, let me find his uh, his. There, here he is. He pastored at Moody Church. That's pretty amazing. He taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School at, and Dallas Seminary. He was writer for Cornerstone University, and he was a professor of preaching at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and he wrote tons of awesome books. And so he's got good credentials. So this isn't just me. I want to wrap up with something that he said you know, regarding and, uh, and addressing this concern that all we're doing is creating a mess when we get rid of the law. He said this, legalists in our church today warn that we dare not teach people about the liberty we have in Christ, lest it result in religious anarchy. That's what we're afraid of. He says this, the Christian who lives by faith is not going to become a rebel. Quite to the contrary, he is going to experience the inner discipline of God that is far better and the outer discipline of man-made rules. No man could become a rebel who depends on God's grace. No man can become a rebel who depends on God's grace, yields to God's spirit, lives for others, and seeks to glorify God. The legalist is the one who eventually rebels because he is living in bondage, depending on the flesh, living for self, and seeking the praise of men, and not for the glory of God. The legalist is the one that is going to be entangled and snared in sin and capturing others in that same false doctrine. Legalism is a dangerous doctrine because legalism attempts to do the impossible, change the old nature, and make it obey the laws of God. Something only the Holy Spirit, working in and through us, can do. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Because by grace we are justified, by faith in Christ Jesus, and by grace are we sanctified, by grace, faith, in Christ Jesus.